Are you happy? Americans in particular are infatuated with the idea of happiness. I think it's probably something common to all human beings, but particularly in America, uh, we are just drawn to this idea of happiness. So much so that it was drafted as a major core tenet of our country's existence. You know, when Thomas Jefferson, John Adams, Ben Franklin, and a couple others locked themselves in that room in that early summer day in June of 1776, they decided that one of the very core values which allowed them the opportunity to separate from British rule was life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So it's at our very core, at our very inception. The tradition has continued through every generation since. Happiness is at the very center of all that we do, who we date, who we marry, where we go to school, what career we choose, what we do on the weekends, and even which church we attend is so focused on happiness. With the abundance of choices available to us in this modern era, I think happiness is even at the bottom of what food we decide to eat for our meals. You realize that two generations ago, you didn't have much of a choice. You were happy if you ate. Now we get unhappy if we have to have Taco Bell over Cadoba or something like that. That's a cardinal sin, by the way. In fact, we are so much drawn to the idea of happiness that in 1938, the Harvard University launched one of the world's longest scientific studies of adult life. It followed 268 of its sophomores throughout their lives. Actually, one of our presidents, John F. Kennedy, was one in this class. It tracked them, their careers, their families, living through the Great Depression, into the, world, into the Second World War, past the Korean War, through the nuclear, area, the nuclear era and beyond. And when a test subject would pass away, as many of them obviously have in that time span, one of the children in their group or a spouse that that they had taken in would be added to the study leading to a daunting pool of subjects 1300 people in total all of this was done tracking their life with a singular goal in mind to find out what makes a human being happy isn't that interesting I don't really want to talk about the findings of that study, although it is crazy that they found what a past generation might have just called good, clean living led to actual happiness, controlling your emotions, disciplining your diet, staying dedicated to relationships. That has a lot to do with the answer that they came up with. But I only bring up that study because I want us to see our infatuation with finding this secret sauce of happiness in our lives. Millions of dollars have been spent. Four directors of this particular study have spent almost their entire careers tracking its progress, three of which have passed away. And we desperately still want to know, am I happy? Isn't it interesting then that the book of Psalms, this book which is central to our Bible and ranks very near the top as one of the longest writings in all of the Bible, opens with the words, Blessed is the man 
Blessed is the man. The Hebrew word here for blessed or blessed, depending upon if you grew up under the King James, you say blessed, right? It's almost, it is almost as equal times translated as happy throughout the Bible. So isn't it fascinating that Psalm 1, it opens up with happy is the man. In fact, the psalmist invokes this thought of happiness 24 more times throughout this group of songs that we have in our hymnal called the Book of Psalms. That is three times as many as other books of the Bible. I think it's safe to say that the psalmist and the Lord are also interested in this discussion about mankind's pursuit of happiness. This passage of Scripture has been on my mind for the better part of my study this week because earlier this week, I finished a small book, very small, about praying through the Psalms. You heard me right. Praying through the Psalms. That's a practice that if you come back this evening, I really want to share my heart with you at a, little bit, a lot more detail. So come back tonight at 6. But praying through the Psalms. So earlier this week, I opened Psalms 1 and I began to pray. Now look, you know me, I'm a father of two, and I found the majority of my prayer life revolves around my daughters, and I could not help after reading Psalm 1, but pray, Lord, bless Claire and Nay, make them truly happy. Now look, I, I don't want to sound overly spiritual, mainly because I don't think this is a spiritual way to think, I think it's probably more of the old Pharisee rising up in me. But almost as quickly as I prayed that prayer, Lord, bless them and make them truly happy, I got this like overwhelming feeling of how petty a prayer is that? Have the martyrs throughout the centuries prayed for happiness? Happiness. You have to know that 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 thought comes only from a sad, deep skepticism whenever we discuss the word happiness. And it's a skepticism that I think only comes among counselors and, and pastors who have seen far too many people facing a marital problem or a crisis of faith in which they just want to live in some sin and they throw up their hands and if I've heard it once, I've heard it a dozen and more times, they say, I just want to be happy. They have bought the enemy's lie that happiness is attainable through finally doing what I want to do. And in those moments, I've walked off their porch, they've walked out of my study, and I can't really explain it, but there's this heartbrokenness that comes over me, and I think some of you who have counseled in similar situations, you know the case, that you're you're almost screaming at them, if you only knew, if you only knew that true happiness is not found in what you're chasing after, You want to be truly happy. It's in Christ. And so I felt convicted. Why should I pray for the happiness of my daughters? But it's because we've got a skewed view of happiness. I ought to pray for the happiness of my children. True happiness. Not happiness like the world gives. Fake. Faux. 
lasts a generation kind of thing, maybe a generation kind of happiness. It's not that I'm so old and wizened through the years, it's that the Word of God preaches this exact same thing. There is a joy in following God. There is a deep-seated happiness that comes from not doing what I want to do, but in surrendering to the Lord. There's joy and happiness. So when I prayed, Lord, bless Claire and Naomi, make them truly happy, I didn't mean God let them have fun, help them to be fulfilled in their careers, marry great guys, give them tons of cash, help them to do what they want to do with their life. No, I was praying for true, sincere happiness, not any of those distractions. I began praying the very words of the psalm that they would be firmly planted, grounded, in their lives with the Lord. And it was interesting then that my attention wasn't just focused on my kids, but on our church, all of you who surround my family. In a way that the Lord hasn't done in a while, He just kind of brought many of you by name to mind. But all of you in just total recognition as members of the church. And I began praying for you and your families that you would be happy not as the world sees happiness, but you would be happy because you are rooted and grounded and firmly planted. Now we got to do a little bit of gymnastics here, okay? When we come to the Psalms. The Psalms are unlike any other passage of Scripture. It's not really written in a linear format per se. I'm not a Hebrew scholar, but I've read enough to know that the Hebrew writing style, particularly poetry, is very different from our Western, our English writing style. We love the sudden turn at the very end of the story, don't we? We love the the cliffhanger, like, got to read that next few to to figure out what's going to happen. It's in our novels, it's in our shows, our movies. We praise the, o, the O. Henrys, the M. Night Shyamalans, the, the Abrams, who they can draw the story out until the very last second of the movie, and then just when you think you have it all figured out, bam, surprise ending. And you're just, whoa. We love that. If you're like me, you watch a crime show, you think you've got it all figured out, you know who done it, you hit the remote just to see how much time is left, and you're like, they got 15 minutes now. It could be anybody who murdered this person in the show. But Hebrew writing, especially poetry, it works inward. Not in a linear format. It's not, it's not always rising to the main point at the very end. It works inward. The main point is in the center of the work. The thrust of the psalm is at the very center. So there's very often a build-up of a central theme in the center and then a pointing back to that central theme all the way to the end. And so Psalm 1 follows that course, Hebrew scholars tell us. The main idea of this text is not blessed is the man. It's not, here's how to be happy. The main thrust of this psalm is, He shall be like a tree planted 
by the rivers of water that brings forth fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. The main focus of Psalm 1 is being firmly rooted, grounded, planted as a tree, stalwart, drinking from God's Word. There was a state park in Virginia Beach just a few feet away from the beach that I would often hike throughout college. On one side, you'd see the ocean, and then you'd have this thin strip of a trail that you'd hike on, but then on the other side, it was almost like a swamp-like ecosystem where there were these massive bald cypress trees with the knobby kneed roots sticking up all around. You, you know, the Spanish moss hanging from them. You've probably seen it if you've vacationed in, in coastal areas. I remember asking one of the rangers once if they'd done any studies to know why these trees grew so particularly big in this region because it was, it was crazy. Just across the road, just further down, they were not this massive at all. Obviously, I can't remember all that she said. It was multiple years ago. But I remember that she talked about how the strong storm surges off the ocean, they would often strengthen the smaller saplings to a point where they would grow strong roots, but particularly with bald cypress, they would interlock with other trees' roots around them. And so they were able to withstand strong storms and grow wider and taller because they went deeper, spread out further, and locked in with others. There's a sermon in that all by itself, by the way. That's what I'm praying for in my children and in our church. Strong roots of faith interlocked with stronger faith near them. That's our only hope of growing mature Christians who produce the very fruit of the Spirit as they drink or they delight, as, as they meditate from the nutrients of God's Word that they are planted in. Again, working outward, we go from verse 3 and we work outward to verse 2. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. This water that the tree of faith is planted from or in, it is getting its nutrients from this, the Word of God. Its delight is in the law of the Lord, and he meditates on it day and night. That's what I want from our church. Strong trees, deeply rooted, drinking deeply from the Word of God. But we've got to deal with some negatives in Psalm 1 as well. Verse 1 talks about ungodly counsel, paths of sinners, the lounging of the scornful, but it's really in verses 4 and 5 that we feel the real weight of this issue. There's a stark contrast here between a strong tree and what's then presented in verse 4. The ungodly are not so. But they are like the chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore, 
The ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. They're flighty, unable to stand. In our D6 Sunday School lessons this morning in Colossians, we finished it up and we mentioned Demas. He has forsaken Paul, having loved this this present world. He ran at adversity, like the chaff. Ephesians 4, Paul calls this tossed around, carried about by every wind of doctrine. Essentially, we are talking about a person who seeks their happiness in the next greatest, biggest, newest fad. Whatever they think might bring them peace, help them rest, let them get their feet underneath them for just a second, that's what they put their hope in. That's where they find their worth. And so they will buy in, be it a a new diet plan or a new miracle pill or whatever it might be, be it some things that they are just buying in lock, stock, and barrel, and it it involves some, some deep issues. If it brings me happiness for this moment, that's what I want. The psalmist says, that's chaff. It's flighty. That's how the ungodly are. The righteous and the ungodly. You say, Corey, isn't it a bit ridiculous to say that you're either a strong tree or just chaff blowing in the wind? You're either righteous or ungodly. I mean, come on. Certainly, there's some kind of a middle ground here, right? I might not be a sequoia, but I'm definitely not some weed. There's, there's got to be a gray area here, right? Look, I understand that question. I, I sympathize with it a little, but maybe we should just take a quick look through the Bible because two alternatives are only always given. The way of God or the way of Satan? The way of Abel or the way of Cain? The way of Jacob or the way of Esau? You're either righteous or wicked in God's sight. There's nothing in between. Let's look at Jesus' parables. You either belong to the sheep or to the goats, the wheat or the tares, the wise or the foolish virgins, the good or the bad fish, the faithful or the evil servants, the lost or the found, the rich man or Lazarus, the obedient or the disobedient son. You're either building your house upon a rock or you're building your house upon sand. Read it for yourself all throughout the text. There is ever only two sides. The happy man or the ungodly. Those who the Lord knows or those who are perishing for their ungodliness. The chaff or the tree drinking up God's word or sitting by scornfully laughing at it all. There's only two. 
And for some reason, we have bought into this lie that there is some middle ground here, like I can just sprinkle a little Jesus into my life, add him to my own selfish ambitions, and somehow come out okay, make it to heaven by the skin of my teeth. But we have neglected the very words of Jesus in John chapter 12 when he says, he who loves this life will lose it. And he who hates this life in this world will keep it for eternal life. It was Nashville's very own Fisk University Jubilee Singers who sang it all the way back in 1885. You can have all this world. Give me Jesus. There is simply no middle ground. There are, there's no such thing as a carnal Christian. Get that out of our language. There's no heavenly hellbound. Whatever alliteration you want to title, the title you want to throw in there, it's just not there in God's word. But now let this sink in. Who in this room, who on this planet, fits the description of the righteous man in this text? It ain't me. We have all shunned the deep waters of Scripture and we have, each and every one of us, gone seeking the counsel of the ungodly. Every one of us has answered the beckoning call of someone who would call us to sin and stand with sinners. Down to the man and woman, each of us has sat in the seat of the scornful. Usually it's in our own recliners, in our own living rooms as we flip through the channels and we watch scorn after scorn after scorn after scorn. As we swipe through and it's scorning the Word of God, scorning Christ, every single one of us. What's worse is we're not just talking about the company we keep here. We're talking about the ungodly advice that we have given because we have sometimes, many times, been the ungodly counselors. The sins that we've committed, the arrogant scorning that we have spewed. Rarely ever do we delight in God's law, much less meditate on it day and night. So look, by Psalm 1's standard, there is none righteous. No, not one. There's two grounds here, godly and ungodly. None of us are godly. But Christ, who is our righteousness, walked among us, stood and lifted up the fallen, sat down and ate among thieves and prostitutes, yet he did all of this without sin. What's more is that he walked up Calvary, he stood at the resurrection, and he is seated right now at the right hand of the Father where he is making intercession for us. He's the only righteous one. 
And you might say, Corey, you are over-spiritualizing Psalm chapter 1. This is just talking about live a good life, make sure you don't hang out with the wrong people. You're dead wrong because it is in his great harmonizing of God's word that Jesus himself calls himself a tree. John 15, verse 5, he says, I am the vine. You say, that's a vine, that's not a tree. The word here is the singular trunk. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. Does this sound familiar? <laughs> For without me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered. And they gather them and they throw them into the fire and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. So you will be my disciples. Psalm 1 is truly all about Jesus. The only righteous. Yet the promises contained within Psalm 1 are the very promises that he extends to all those who are in him. Blessing, true happiness in verse 1. And in verse 6, being known by God. You want to be known by God. My prayer this week has been for trees firmly planted, drinking deep the word of God, producing other believers through our testimony of grace, unwithering against the harshest conditions. He changed it. From God, make them happy. To God, make them firmly planted. He's one of my favorite authors. I've quoted him hundreds of times. C.S. Lewis once wrote, Look for Christ, and you'll find him, and with him, everything else. Look for Christ and you will find him and with him everything else. It's just a more modern way of saying what Jesus said. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. If your aim, if your focus, if your goal is happiness, you will be sorely disappointed in this life. When you're fired, when she throws the divorce papers at you, when the kids have the deep addiction, when all those things come and happiness, that which you've been aiming for all your life, seems to just be ripped out of your grasp, you will lose everything. But if you aim for Christ, Firmly rooted, grounded, planted in Him. Drinking deep from His Word. It does not matter what this world does in, around, or to you. 
Blessed is the man because he is in Christ. Blessed are you and known by God. I love you. I love you. I'm so thankful for the opportunity that God has blessed me with ministering to you, preaching God's word every week, multiple times a week. If in any of my preaching you ever get the sense of marrying this world with Christ's world, I need to resign. He is life. You come to Him with all your hopes and dreams, all the things that you want to do, you crucify them at His feet, and He gives you the desires of your heart, not because it's what you want to do, but it's because of what He's blessing you with as a good father gives good gifts to His children. My fear is that we have many many who are trying to live the American dream which is not evil in and of itself over top of a gospel calling. And I think we're going to find now and soon in the years to come that the two were not meant to marry. I want you to be happy. Truly happy. Blessed. Fulfilled. Growing. Drinking from the wealth of his knowledge. It's been my prayer. Thanks for listening to New Hope Church's podcast. If you would like to listen to more content from our church, follow us at newhopefwbc.com.